All right, welcome back to the Ottawa studios of Inside My Canoe Head. I am your host, Dr. D. Today, we are going to talk about survival minimums, weather-specific, risk-specific. So grab yourself your favorite beverage. Let's get at her. We are in the month of December 2023. We have started the wind down of what an incredible year it has been. We've got some plans for a couple of at least one, if not two, wonderful closing of the year type episodes wrap up where we've been, where we're going, that kind of conversation. Right now, though, I think it's really really important to take a little bit of time to talk about some weather-specific and risk-specific survival minimums that we need to know and we need to adapt to, to adopt a prepared life and to rock an incredible life. And thanks again for all of your feedback on the previous episodes. We enjoy it. Continue it coming. Drop us a line at jeff at preparednesslabs.ca. Drop over to our website, preparednesslabs.ca, or the podcast's website, insidemycanoehead.ca. Leave us a comment. Tell us how we do, good, bad, or indifferent. Any way you want to give it to us, we'd rather hear it from you than hear it spammed all over social media. You can do that too. You would not be the first. So thanks again for joining us on this wonderful Monday, the beginning of the first full week of the month of December. I love it. And this morning I spent 40 minutes out on the driveway clearing out our first snowstorm of the year. Okay. It was only like eight to 10 centimeters. It was the heavy stuff. It took far longer than it should because I'm a bit of perfectionist when it comes to what my driveway looks like after a storm. So a great way, good Canadian PT to start it off. And it was very indicative about this topic. Sometimes things just work out well together. When we want to talk about survival minimums, what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about the things that you need to consider to talk about survival, vice, living, an incredible life. And sometimes we have to go back to this principle and we're going to first talk about weather specific. I'm going to bring in a really important concept that comes from military. And it's the phrase that ground dictates everything. And that means that your geospace that you occupy, the physical ground, the people on the ground, the structures on the ground, the weather patterns, the pattern of life, everything physical that is around you, both in the sense of a people and place, is considered a ground in the military concept. And ground dictates everything. You can't influence ground. You can leverage it. You can find key terrain, vital ground, things that are important to your defense or things that are absolutely critical to your defense, however you might be doing this. But the point is, is you have to understand that you are an animal in the environment. And ground dictates everything means you can't command the weather. You can't command your city to do something. You can't command the people around you to do something. You can't command the buildings to be in different spaces. There are a whole bunch of things that you're exposed to that you literally have zero influence on. Ground dictates everything. Whatever you do from this point forward must be in frame and in concert with the ground around you, the people, places, and things that surround you. And first, we'll have a look at, you all have a shelter-in-place plan. 
If you've been listening to us here at Inside Mike and New Ed, we're coming up on almost four years being on air, well over 220 episodes, downloaded in 48 countries. If you don't have a shelter-in-place plan, we've got a series of previous episodes that you need to jump on or go to our website, pick up our book, Preparedness Simplified. It's an ebook. It's got $7 Canadian. It has everything in there, but your shelter-in-place plan basically is the grounding of your emergency preparedness family plan. And it starts with family. You have to define who your family are, right? Is everybody's family looks different. It can be multi-generational. It can be multi-location. It can be whatever it is to you. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks what family is. It's up to you. What are your family's needs, special needs, requirements, etc.? And what is the timeline that you have settled on that you have decided you want to be able to shelter in place for? Now, here at Inside My Canoe Head and Preparedness Labs Incorporated, we recommend being prepared prepared for 14 days and there is science behind that that's just not a w- number that i haul out of me arse as we say from the east coast 14 days is very much based on a 95 percent probability of the restoration of critical infrastructure after a significant event so if you're prepared for 14 days to shelter in place to provide the full suite of animalistic requirements, food, water, shelter, health, safety, and security to your family in the residence that you own or you live, then you are going to beat the odds 95% of the time. That's why 14 days makes sense. So if you consider that, your shelter-in-place plan is based. You have that, right? You always have to reflect this, and we talk about it in all of our literature, is weather-specific right? Your shelter in place plan works because it's a home. It's where your stuff is. It's where your people feel safe. It's where your mental health will be the most positive, but you're going to have to be able to climate control that. And we talk about that a bit in the shelter piece. When we talk about your animalistic requirements, it's not just simply having a wall around it. How do you climate control? How do you climate control the space in which you and your family are going to shelter? Now, these are weather extremes. It's not just because we're starting winter that we're talking about cold. There are, you know, tens of thousands of people die in Europe every year due to heat events. And it's no joke, right? So it's weather extremes. How do you intend to thermoregulate? Now, we're going to go over three threats because I think this is the best way to frame it. Threat number one. It's thermal regulation of your core body temperature. That's your number one survival threat. That's it. It's that simple. Thermal regulation of your core body temperature. That comes directly from the gray bearded green beret. He invented that saying. He uses it in his material. I'm giving him reference here, but it's absolutely critical. That's why you have a shelter. That's why you have to have a plan with or without power that you supply when there's no utilities available, how do you intend to regulate the temperature to the best extent possible in your shelter-in-place plant? You just have to think through that. Am I going to give you the exact specific things you have to do? No, because I don't know where you live, right? Your situation is going to be different. Think your way through it. If you live in exceptionally hot climate, you have to move air through. And the situation is simple. Hot air rises, So basically you have to have higher ceilings 
and you have to have a way for the hot air to evacuate the top and an opening down below that you open. And by natural convection of air, you will have an airflow. You don't need a fan, right? An open window at a low level and an open window at a high level will, by the very nature of the world itself, create a convection uh, a based airflow through your residence. Uh, for heating, generally that is... You have to, you'll, you're going to have blankets, right? Everybody gets to bed at night. Everybody's got blankets. So between warm weather clothes, because if you live in a cold world, you probably have warm weather clothes and from blankets and you basically congregate in the smallest room that fits everybody. And in the old uh, East coast, the pioneers used to call it the keeping room and the keeping room is where everybody kept warm. And it was a small room in the house where everybody would sleep. Everybody would spend the day on cold nights when they weren't moving because the help of the body heat. And whatever your strategy is, that's your first threat. Now, your second threat, right, is a caloric or a hydration deficit. These are threats for basic human survival. So you have a shelter in place plan. You have, say, 10 people in your family. You've squared away 2,000 calories per person per day. So you have 20,000 calories per day times your timeline sitting at home. You have two liters of potable water per person per day. So you have a 20 liter jerry can per, per day for potable water. You have extra water. Uh, for washing and cooking. And you also have a secondary source of how you're going to find or, or shall we say, procure additional water if necessary uh, throughout your time. Now that in of itself should be fine. But what about the weather impacts on that? right? If it's freezing cold and your weather and your plan, like mine is, for example, my extra water will come from a downspout on my house. We get a substantial amount of rain where I live periodically. And so I can count on hundreds and hundreds of liters per storm being made available to me. And then I just have to have a methodology to purify it, but I can use it for washing and showering and bathing and all this other stuff. Uh, perfectly fine. But what if it's February? How, how am I going to get the water? And, and you know, te, wa, snow to water is about a 10 to 1 ratio, right? So if I grab a pot, a liter pot uh, worth and pack it tightly full of snow, I'm going to get about 100 mils out of that, right? So, um, and then that's how I melt it. So how am I going to melt it? Am I going to heat it? And then how am I going to generate that heat? These are the things where caloric and hydration deficits impacted by the weather specifics that you're considering. So think through, where do you live? Cold, hot temperature, mild temperature, lots of wind, no wind. Think through your weather specific. As we said at the beginning, the first two threats are based upon ground dictates everything, right? You have a shelter in place plan. Think about thermal regulation of core body temperature and a caloric hydration deficit that may be influenced by weather patterns, extreme weather patterns. Remember, when we're talking about weather and seasonal, we're talking about extreme. The human body is pretty freaking adaptable to most fluctuations in weather patterns when you have basic shelter. And when I mean basic shelter, I simply mean a wall to keep the wind and the rain out. That's basic shelter. I'm not even talking a heating or cooling source. Okay. Third threat. And this is one that you're not seeing coming. The third threat is about the difference between thriving in a weather related emergency 
and surviving. We hear about it a lot in preparedness that everything we teach here at Inside My Canoe Head and Preparedness Labs Incorporated is about the thriving mentality, right? We want you to thrive in chaos. We don't want you to just survive. The human animal pretty much can do that. Unless the tornado picks you up and throws you through the air or throws a board at you and hits you at 200 kilometers an hour with a board, you're going to survive. If you survive a tornado, you're not going to starve to death. You're not going to freeze to death. That's just not going to happen. The human animal is incredibly adaptable. And if you live in that environment, you have a reasonable capability and skill set. What we're referring to is your ability to thrive. Now you ask me, what's the difference between surviving and thriving? Very, very simple. Thriving is that are you able to execute the complete set of tasks when the world's up and running and when the world is down? So think about the world is supported by the 10 sectors of critical infrastructure, right? So the power goes off, the water goes off, the internet goes down. Are you still capable of executing your full suite of normal tasks that you do as a result of the loss of access to critical infrastructure? That's thriving. You're able to execute the full suite of things that you did before the power went out, once the power goes out. When the water goes off, After the water goes off, like your life does not change. You have a strategy that allows you to carry on and thrive, which means you're basically, you may be inconvenienced and you probably are, but everything you've got to do still gets done. Your online work still gets done when the power goes out. How do you execute that? Well, that's called a family preparedness plan at the thriving level has you access to internet without power. You're mo- you've figured out a way to power your modem when the electricity is off, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We've got podcast episodes on all of that, but that's the difference. If you're looking for to to categorize the difference between surviving and thriving, thriving is whatever it is that has impacted you has not restricted you from being able to execute your normal set of tasks that is thriving. That's a threat because right now, the vast majority of public sector resident facing preparedness communications is teaching you how to be a victim, right? A shelter in place plan does not mean you hold down the fort, you put armed guards on the porch and you wait for the whole thing to go by. That's not a shelter-in-place plan. Not at all. A shelter-in-place plan means you've covered the six animalistic requirements to facilitate everybody's ability to be able to continue to rock an incredible life, continue to do their work, execute their tasks, execute their leisure, and have fun and enjoy throughout whatever the disruption may be. That's a shelter-in-place plan. If you think a shelter-in-place plan is simply hunkering down and waiting for the bad day to be over, then you've missed the intent of a preparedness plan because you're just surviving and the human animal is pretty much going to do that all on its own without you doing anything. No, we're talking about thriving. So if we think about a weather-specific, what if we happen to jump over to risk-specific? The other half, we're going to talk about risk-specific in the frame as a hazard identification, right? So what is risk? Well, risk is the future probability of an event occurring that if it were to occur would cause some type of inconvenience or harm to your ability to food, water, shelter, and earn an income. So 
Risk is measured in many, many different ways, but in a simplistic way, it always comes back to risk is the probability of an outcome or an event occurring multiplied by the severity of the potential outcome. So remember, risk is identified, risk is individualistic. And I mean this because you and I live in the same town, but based upon our preparedness plans, a power outage will have next to no impact on me whatsoever. So the potential outcome is almost new is almost nil. But for somebody who has no preparedness plan, requires medical devices that need power, the risk of a power outage is absolutely consequential and far larger. So you can't take risk profiling from a grand across the board. It has to be individualistic to your circumstances. And we do this, again, we're going to bring in another military analogy. We do this through war gaming the scenario, right? So war gaming the scenario means you're going to identify probable hazards that you face. And we do this as part of your initial setting up your preparedness plan. So do you live in a flood zone? right? Do you live in a flood zone? Has your residence, your street, or your area flooded in the past 70 or 80 years? Uh, do you Are you in a place where you could get hit by a hurricane? Are you on an earthquake fault, right? Do you regularly have tornadoes or live in the potential area for tornadoes? That's the kind of hazard identification. And you will come across one because nobody in North America where I live and in Europe and anywhere else around the world, Africa, where we've, uh, or the Middle East, where we have a huge amount of downloads, shout out to all my friends in the Middle East, um, you have hazards, right? You do not live in a place where there are no hazards. You live in a place where you have yet to identify the hazard. So once you figure out what that hazard is that you are exposed to by a simple choice that you've made due to the location that you've decided to live, that's all it is. You've chosen to live in a certain town, a certain city, a certain country. And unless you live in a communist state and you can't get a passport, and you're an age 18 majority, you have the ability to leave and choose a different country to live in or a different part of the country, right? Mobility is real in the 21st century. So you live in a certain place by choice. You are not forced to be there. And therefore, by choosing to live there, you're accepting a certain hazard. So war gaming the scenario, understand what it is, understand what it looks like, and then figure out what your outcome is. Now, outcomes of war games are predetermined, right? We know what we want the outcome to be, and we're going to war game the scenario. This is where we deviate slightly from the military idealistic of war gaming. When we war game for preparedness, we know the preconceived outcome we want. We know the start point, we know the end point. We just don't know what that path through that navigation of that disruption is going to do. This is what the hazard identification and wargaming will do for you is it lays out a plan. And now we map this based upon Sam Kaner's, uh, Dr. Sam Kaner's PhD work on um, facilitation. He's the author of some of the greatest facilitation uh, books, et cetera. And it's a way of planning with a group of people or planning on an individual level as to how to get through an idea. So you're faced with 
you live in an earthquake zone. Let's just take earthquake. I love earthquakes um, because it's just the power of nature. And there's freaking absolutely nothing any of us can do about it, right? So when you think about the first part of Kaner's thought process is called the divergent thinking zone. And this is, we know it a lot of time as something close to brainstorming, right? So this is where I know I live in a place that sits on an earthquake fault, right? I know that. I actually do. I live in Ottawa, which is on an earth, which is on an earthquake zone, and I've felt one before. Um, fantastic! It's 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 an incredibly scary but incredibly invigorating, powerful feeling to feel nature reminding you who's in charge. Uh, but Kaner talks about the divergent zone, and the divergent zone is where you're putting down all the possible things that you could do just a, a brain blast of ideas. You put them down. I could make sure that my home is, uh, only choose to live in an earthquake proof place. I could leave the earthquake zone. I could, um, build a safe room in the house. I, I mean, you just, it's divergent thinking, which means there is no wrong answer. And the right answer is coming up with many different ideas that come out of your head. And then we move when we war game to the grown zone. The grown zone is where you have to start eliminating the unrealistic, right? Okay, I don't want, I want to live in an earthquake proof house. Well, guess what? I don't, right? Earthquake standards are pretty weak. Uh, I'm likely to believe the building I'm in won't kill me, but it probably won't be habitable afterwards, right? So I, I don't live in an earthquake-proof zone, and I don't think any housing in the city where I live is built to proper seismic standards. It's just not part of our local building code. Yeah, welcome to Ottawa. So as you work through that scenario, you work through the grown zone and you start to remove things that just don't make any logical sense, right? And then you work towards the last zone that Kaner talks about, which is convergent thinking. And this is where you're starting to bring the ideas together. You're starting to bring your hazard identification and the and your war game scenario of what the world looks like when this occurs through to the other end. The end result is, is you end up with multiple different paths. It's very similar to what we talked about a couple episodes ago about strategic thinking and strategic ideas. When you're a strategic thinker and you're looking out in your five-year strategic plan, you know what the end state looks like in five years. You know that there's probably five or six probable roads that you could follow. You know these roads are going to change over the next five years, but you have a pretty darn good handle and strategy on top of them, right? Very much the same when you war game a hazard that comes to you that, that's present in your life, right? As you think through all the probable ways can do it. Now, I've used Sam Kaner's idea. There are military planning strategies. There's all kinds of different ways to planning. Emergency management even has one in the ICS. They have the big planning P that they use. There is no one right strategy to plan. There is your requirement to plan. So the idea of hazard identification is to war gaming via a strategy that you feel ability to do. And you go, when you war game through the water comes, okay, the earthquake happens. What are the probable outcomes? So the probable outcomes are probably only three things, right? One, there's no damage to my residence. It's completely fine. I can stay living into it. 
Two, there's damage to my residence, but it still stands, a.k.a. it didn't kill me, which means I can gather my things and leave, but I can't stay. And then there's the third one is, is my, my residence was damaged beyond useful use and I can't get access to it because it's danger of collapsing, right? So those are your three possible outcomes of your original. Now, what do you do about that? Well, there's probably two or three things that come out of each one of those. And you can see how this maps in a spider web of probable outcomes. And as you go through these choices, you start to realize it's a map, right? It's a map from you over here on the left-hand side of your whiteboard, happy you, Nothing happening. Bam. Earthquake event. And you look out the other end. Happy you living back in a house. Right. So there's a whole series of freaking things that happen. And when you map out all the probable possibilities, right, from the three outcomes, right, say you have three outcomes for the house from the from the earthquake and each one of those has three now you've got one start point that now has nine roadmaps on it you see how this works and then it could expand to 15 but at a certain point those as you go through the grown zone and the choices start coming back together you'll start seeing it mapped down so when you do this mapping exercise and it's hard to visualize here i'm going to do a youtube video on this mapping shortly when you map this out visually and i'm a visual mapper. That's why I use whiteboards. You can use paper. It's really hard to do this in your head because <laughs> you can lose track. Some of us are a little older, but if you do it at a whiteboard or on a piece of paper, basically you'll go from one pat one start point to about 15 to 18, maybe as high as 30 different pathways, but then it converges back down again. So it looks like a big sideways diamond, right? And in uh, a diamond rotated 90 degrees either way is basically what it looks like. In the middle, you have about 25 pathways. And at the end, you have a start point, And at the other end, you have a finish point. And so basically, you're presented to, in front of you, say, 25 different pathways. Now you war game those pathways. And eventually, one of those pathways will come out of the war game as your plan as to how to navigate. Now you have a hazard specific survival minimum plan for you. Map that on top of your weather specific shelter in place three threat plan. And what do you have? You have your survival minimums that will help you out so thanks uh very much for joining us on this episode of inside my canoe head hopefully our little chat about weather specific and risk specific survival minimums was helpful was useful you got a couple of little takeaway nuggets out of there that you can bring back somewhere and use somehow remember if you enjoy what you hear at Inside My Canoe Head, make sure you leave us a nice review. If you don't like it, send me an email at Jeff at Preparedness Labs and tell me why. You wouldn't be the first. People do. And I really enjoy it. I take the time to answer each and every one of them, uh, even the ones that are rude. But I get those and, they, and I most certainly will answer them because I'm a podcast host, right? This is free. It always will be free. Uh, you're spending your most valuable asset of time in listening, and therefore it's my responsibility to give you what you want. And again, that goes with if you want to see me talking or listen to me talking about a specific uh, episode or topic that I have yet to do, or you want me to circle back and revisit something, you drop me an email. Happy to. 
You want to come on this podcast as a guest and heckle me? You want to come on the podcast and debate me about something I've said? Love that too. Drop me an email at jeff at preparednesslabs.ca. Drop over to our website. Check out everything we have. We have a mailing list. Every week we put out a mailer on Wednesdays. The email list is on preparednesslabs.ca. Sign up for that. Everything we do here is free. Sure, like everybody else, we've got some paid products, but we are grounded in this community service of providing emergency preparedness information so that you can wrap yourself in a blanket of preparedness. You can rock an incredible life, and it's abso-freaking-freaking-free. It is. Preparedness is free. Absolutely always will be. It doesn't cost you any money to get prepared. It's just your most valuable resource, time, and a little bit of thinking. So thanks again for joining us at Inside My Canoe Head. Have yourself an awesome week. Take care.